The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see you here tonight. Jerry will be back in a moment to turn some lights on, but we'll just go ahead and get started. I thought uh, it might be good to take some time and just check if people have any questions about meditation instruction, well, either the particular instructions I gave tonight or just generally questions about your practice. So every month or so, we take the time for this. So any questions come to mind or comments even about sitting practice? Yeah. I'm Margaret, and I'm wondering what is the value of not smoking? Yeah. Well, there's a couple things. Um, oftentimes, maybe the great majority of times, when we move the body and any kind of movement really, but in particular when we're sitting, we'll notice that the the movement is some attempt to alleviate unpleasant sensations. And that's symbolic of this deep-rooted habit that the um, way to deal with difficulty in life is to fix it. And we get rewarded for that you know, in life in general, you know, to people who take this active approach. Oh, there's a problem. I'll put my mind to it. I'll fix it. But it, it, in a way, it limits us because whenever there's discomfort, or if ever we can imagine being more comfortable, we always move. But there's really no end to that. It's like, so let's say we get a little bit more comfort. We've adjusted, and we get a little bit more comfort. But you know, there's that that pattern can repeat itself. Well, maybe I could be even more comfortable if I adjust again, if I do this, if I do that. And it puts us on this path of always seeking happiness out in the world, out in the world of our bodies, out in the world of our thoughts about things, but not seeking happiness through letting go. So, you know, in spiritual circles, not just Buddhism, but in general in spiritual circles, and this is a good, I think, find this very useful distinction. You know, the Buddha used the distinction between worldly life and the path, you know, dharma or the spiritual path. And the distinction is how we're seeking happiness. Because everybody's seeking happiness. There isn't any being, whether they're human or animal or whatever, Every being is seeking happiness. It's just what it's kind of like a definition of a living being is that they're seeking happiness. But the question is, uh, where are we, how are we seeking happiness? And generally, like what the Buddha would say, if you read the discourses of the Buddha, you know, the untaught worldlings, you know, that means us, we seek happiness by. Uh, trying to find it by manipulating the world, manipulating our thoughts about the world, manipulating our friends and uh, the people we interact with, manipulating our body. That's how we seek happiness. A spiritual being, a well-taught follower of the path, he or she seeks happiness through the process of letting go. Letting go of identification and attachment to the conditions of the present moment. Doesn't mean pushing away, because that's a version, that's a form of attachment. Oh, I don't like the world, I don't like my mind, I don't like my thoughts, I don't like my painful sensations in my body. So that's why the Buddha called it a middle way. It's not about being averse to the body or the thoughts, the mind, and it's not about being attached or grasping certain thoughts or certain sensations in the body. It's about seeking happiness someplace else. So you heard me at the very end, you know, in the guided meditation, just suggest that, you know, we can sit here aware, sensitive. So we're not like shutting off the five senses. We're not shutting off the thinking mind. 
those things are happening. Sounds are being heard, thoughts are being thought, sensations are being felt, sights are being seen, right? Smells are being smelled. But we're, in a sense, intuiting or having insight into a stillness in the midst of all that activity. And that stillness gets revealed when we let go of this habit of trying to manipulate or control what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what we're smelling, what we're feeling tactically, tactfully in the body, what we're thinking in the mind. As long as we're sort of playing in that playground, we miss this other place for happiness. So the Buddha never denied that there is actual happiness in what we see and what we smell and what we taste and what we touch and what we think. There is a, a kind of limited happiness in the world, in sense experience. But it's limited because we can't really make it last. We move the body a little, and then we've got to move it again, and then we've got to move it again, and then we've got to move it again. There's really no end to finding a comfortable sitting posture. So we just do well enough at the beginning, and then we sit. Now, it's a little difficult when you come here because we sit for about 35 minutes, um, and some of you get here earlier, so it's even longer. But at home, you can start with a period of time that you know you can tolerate. Generally, you can tolerate the sensations for that length of time. It doesn't mean they're pleasant, but you know you're safe. You're not going to destroy your body by sitting for that. And then you can build up your capacity. And then the idea is there you are. Sometimes the body feels really comfortable and grounded. Sometimes the body feels like it's going to go crazy because the sensations are unpleasant. But we don't seek happiness by moving the body. We seek happiness by letting go, not of the painful sensations, but letting go of the identification, taking the painful sensations personally. It's a practice. Now, it's not so easy to practice when the sensations in the body are really intense. But when there's mild discomfort, mild restlessness in the body, that's a good place to practice letting go of our identification with the unpleasantness, for example, in the sensations. So there, there, are, there are those sensations, of course, because they're there. We haven't moved. And the mind is conditioned not to like them because of the way the kind of particular characteristics of those sensations. But that's it. There's just the sensations and then the unpleasantness of the sensations. But the mind's not grasping, not turning, not uh, constructing a story about a somebody who doesn't like the sensations. It's keeping really simple. And that's what we learn by paying attention to the breath. It's not like we're using the breath to escape. I mean, to some degree, that, that's true. But it's really we're using like the breath meditation or really any kind of meditation with a specific object. We use that neutral object to collect the mind so that we get a sense of what it's like to be really, really simple. That means we're with the breath, but we're not identified with the breath. We're not taking it personally. Just the breath comes in and out. There's no story about the breath. Because you can't get really intimate with the breathing process and also have a story about it. I'm here breathing at Kamagawa Meditation Center. That actually gets in the way of knowing the in-breath as it actually is, as a present moment phenomena, that touching, for example, at the nostrils or the movement in the belly. To know it with real intimacy, with real sensitivity, means we have to drop all stories. And that's, that helps us understand what it means to be simple, to be not identified, not attached, not grasping in any way. And then, then when something disturbs our meditation, we bring that same attitude to it, like the pain in the body, for example, or a disturbing sound, like there are a lot of jets uh, during the sit tonight. You probably, maybe you noticed. Maybe you were so involved in your thoughts you didn't notice. Or <laughs> maybe you were so, your mind was so simple that you didn't register. So there's two reasons why we can not notice something. Either the meditation's really good, or the meditation's really bad. <laughs> But if it's really good and we don't notice, it's because it's not that we, we don't notice so much as that the mind, in a sense, the object of awareness is the simplicity of the mind, not the different objects that are coming and going, the painful sensations that are coming and going, 
the thoughts, the sounds of the jets that are coming and going. All of life is allowed, all the different sense gates are allowed to do what they're doing. But the mind is still, it's still in the act of letting go, in the act of being simple, in the act of this sort of, uh, it's like an inner stillness. So the mind is aware of its own simplicity. It's like an inner beauty. We call it bliss. But this is a real refuge for the mind. And it sets up deeper and deeper insight. So it's not an end in itself, this silence or stillness or quiet in the mind, this inner bliss. But it really sets up insight. And that stillness comes by letting go of our involvement in the world. We have to get simple. That simplicity creates a real happiness, an inner happiness that's not dependent on the body feeling good, the sounds being quiet, the room being the right temperature. It's a happiness that arises because of our independence from the external conditions as opposed to the external conditions being just right. So that's another way of talking about the two kinds of happiness. One happiness comes from working with the world and making the conditions just right. Just the right friends, the right temperature, the right body sensations, the right thoughts. Or there's a happiness that arises through not being dependent on these conditions, what we call the present moment. And so there's two paths. One's the worldly path, one's the spiritual path. Thanks, Margaret. Yeah, Nick. Do you have what you're describing in everyday activity? Yeah, it's just a little bit harder, Bert. Well, you know, in some ways it's easier because the formal sitting practice tends to get, like any kind of activity that has a certain structure or form, it tends to get ossified. You know, like we could become bureaucrats in our sitting. Like we've got to do it this way. We've got to sit this way. We've got to have, you know, I need my shawl. I need to be at common ground. I don't sit well anywhere else. So sitting practice can have its own problems. And daily life practice can be the heart, the mind can be a little bit more creative and spontaneous and thus heavy about it. And so sometimes actually practice this kind of freedom or this kind of uh, silence in the mind or stillness in the mind can arise in moments in daily life for sure. But the problem is we don't expect it. You know, we generally have an adversarial relationship with our daily life. You know, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. And so we're not actually expecting to be free or expecting to be happy when we're out in the world. And so we don't see it. Now, if we bring that attitude, you know, if we bring the attitude of, of not clinging to any of what's going on, being really there but not clinging, and really residing the mind resting in this, uh, you could call it like an inner unification, like the mind is resting in its non-attachment, in its non-grasping, its non-clinging to what's going on. You're still interacting, doing what needs to be done, but you're, in a sense, aware of the letting go, of the non-grasping. Then you could experience the same thing. And ultimately, that's obviously where we want to go. We don't want to just be happy when we're meditating. We want to be happy, you know, 24 hours a day, free 24 hours a day. Thanks, Nick. Other thoughts or questions about practice that come to mind? Yeah. And Yeah, nice to see you. Well, this whole idea of being happy when you're meditating. I feel way happier the rest of my life than I do when I meditate. But I get the value of it so I practice it. And one of the hard parts for me is the breath. And I, I've, I've asked you about this before, but I won't ask you again. Mm-hmm. Because I, as I chat with people about it, the breath and meditation, I feel like a lot of people struggle with it. Yeah, me too. And, uh, I find that you, you, know, you say at one point, okay, now just let the breath be normal and let go of trying to control it. And I'm like, it's like more, it's like really hard for me to, to do that, to, to just let it
normal relationship with my body. You know, I never have this, like, I shouldn't think about it, and then I just read normal. And yeah. so it's not really a neutral thing for me, and so I try to focus on other things. But they don't seem to work the same. Like, you've talked about, like, your butt on the seat, or your hands in your mouth. <laughs> I mean, what you're really saying is nothing's a really good anchor. And that's because we have to train the mind. You know, it's, it's like... Uh, it's not the breath itself or this other sensations in the body itself or another anchor that's often used is just like hearing. Both the obvious sounds, like the background sound of the traffic and the trees, the wind going through the trees, and but also a more subtle inner sound, like a kind of hum that some people can hear when uh, their mind is more settled. So whether you use hearing, whether you use feeling the body more generally, whatever's predominant in terms of the sensations, or specifically a, an anchor like the breath here in the belly or the breath right here at the nostrils, Whatever it is, it's generally a challenge for all kinds of reasons. One reason it's a challenge is as soon as we let go of our, our usual habit of just letting the mind do whatever it wants to do, the mind is going to resist that. And it's going to resist it for two reasons. One is it's in the habit of doing whatever it wants to do, worrying about this, planning that, thinking about, fantasizing. And the other reason it's going to resist it is when we let go, when we train the mind not to distract in the way it normally distracts itself, all of a sudden we're feeling what we've been running from. You know, one of the reasons we keep distracting ourselves is we avoid feeling the sort of built up tension in the body and the mind. It's like we're running, it's like a big wave is there. And we're like swimming or trying to get out of the ocean before it hits. And, uh, and when we stop that, you know, it's like all of a sudden there we land in the present moment with our crazy mind and our crazy body. And it is, it can be often at least, uh, an intense experience. Or we tend to go unconscious immediately. Like that's for people who haven't really gotten over some of the initial hurdles in your practice, gotten enough meditation, enough meditation experience, generally those two things happen. You sit down and it's like monkey mind arises, but you have no perspective, no space around it. So you feel beaten up by it, thrown around by it. Or the, just the act of coming into the meditation form, the meditation posture, the mind just sort of out of safety just shuts itself off and you go either into a trance or go to sleep. <coughs> and this happens often for people, for a long time even. And like you said, you have a, a real sense that there's something useful and wholesome in the practice. So we want to, uh, we don't want to give up. So uh, when we, you know, th there's, there's a couple steps. One is, we really want to remember that we're doing this practice because we care about ourselves. And that, that alone can really help because you want to keep coming back. Like when you start over, you know, let's say in a given 30-minute sit, you might start over, you know, literally like starting over, conscious, okay, totally lost, I'm going to begin again, 10 to 200 times. I mean, just depending on how many times you really catch yourself being lost. So you start over. But you want to start over with the right attitude. So we're not like rushing back because we've been bad, because we've been thinking. But we're, we're just remember, oh yeah, I'm just here. I'm doing this. I'm cultivating this practice because I care about myself. And because I have a sense that it leads to happiness, not later when I'm a good meditator. But right now, this will be useful. And just because it feels, in a sense, on the surface, it feels better to just let our mind do what it always does. If we really pay attention, we'll realize that's not true. That's part of the delusion. 
that we think just letting our mind do what it wants to do, like fantasize about this, worry about that, plan about that, it isn't pleasant. But what we do, we're, we're moving. It's kind of going back to what Margaret was saying. We make adjustments or we think about another thing. So, you know, I'm fantasizing about going to see a movie, and then that all of a sudden it gets tight because i got to figure out, well, should I invite this person to go with me, or should I go see this movie or that movie? And then, so we abandon that and we think about something else. So we keep moving, and the movement, the going from here to there to there, it masks how much suffering there is. It doesn't mean there isn't a lot of suffering in our normal mental activity. It just means we're so distracted and jumping around that we don't realize how much tension, how much suffering there is. But we'll notice the suffering a lot more in the meditation experience. But it doesn't mean there's actually more suffering. It just means we're aware of the, of the tension in the body and the mind in a way that we can live a lifetime and not be aware of it. But it doesn't mean we're not a suffering being. In a way, we're even more of a suffering being. We're an unconscious suffering being. And an unconscious suffering being has no possibility of changing the trajectory of their life. And now you might think, well, if there's just one life, what does it matter? But in the Buddhist cosmology, of course, we just keep setting in motion something that will repeat itself over and over again endlessly. This is what we call samsara. And this, is, this makes us feel a little bit more vigilant and, respons- and responsible, not to just use distraction as a strategy for life, but to be willing to feel the residual pain, mental and physical pain, of having used distraction in the past. That is the inevitable cost of beginning our practice, is we actually have to feel what it feels like to be this human being in this moment. And it's often not pretty. But it's a step in the right direction, even though it's unpleasant to, to feel what we're feeling. And it takes a, this is why community is so important, because most people aren't interested in this practice because it is difficult. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean it isn't in the right direction. So whether you choose to stay with the breath, and or whether you work with sensations more generally in the body, or whether you work with hearing as an anchor, or whatever particular meditation technique or strategy you use to practice abandoning or letting go of the world, you know, simplifying the mind. That's what the anchor is. It's like it's a stepping stone to letting go. We take a hold of one thing, the in-breath, the out-breath, in order to let go of everything else. You know, it isn't easy to let go of everything else at first. So we, you know, first we just let go of the past and the future. But to let go of thinking and to let go of our obsessing and our neurotic activity, we need a refuge. We need a kind of working ground. And that's really with the breath or with the sensations in the body or hearing or whatever our anchor is. That's really its place. But there's going to be a lot of resistance. So starting over hundreds of times in a sit, you may think that was a bad sit, but that's a good sit. You know, every time we let go of our thinking, our fantasizing, our worrying, our planning, or controlling of the breath, and just start over in a simple way. Okay, this is how it is now, you know? And making peace with the storm in the body and storm in the mind, and turning the attention back again, because we care from this right attitude, you know, of caring for this life, because I care, I'm going to connect and sustain attention with the breath. Even if it feels controlling, I'm not intentionally controlling the breath. But if it feels tight or controlled, I let that be. So trying not to have a controlled breath is a way of controlling it. But I want to just, one last thing I want to say is, even though we say, I say, and often teachers say, just let the breath happen, there's often, there needs to be some steps to letting the breath happen. So sometimes you can take a little bit of control of the breath, maybe breathe a little bit more deeply, like we do at the beginning of the sit, just in a sense taking a hold of it and consciously 
sort of breathing more deeply into the belly or sending the breath throughout the body, like the whole body is breathing, like using some meditation gimmicks or techniques like that can be useful. So it, the instructions are always more simple than they actually are. You know, we're not actually, because that itself can be a bit of a trip to say, don't control the breath. You know, that can make the mind tight. So the stepping stone might be, take control of the breath and consciously breathe in a way that makes the body and mind happy. You know, And then eventually you'll discover that the way to make the mind and body really happy is to not have to control the breath. But there may be some stepping stones before that where you're intentionally breathing in. And you can use a word like breathing in, accepting things as they are. So use a word there, you know, breathing in love, breathing in acceptance, exhaling, letting go, exhaling, releasing, releasing the grip, releasing the need to control. So you can use different meditation words to bring this kind of uh, healing into the present moment. But eventually, we'll learn, and it may take years, but eventually, in, at least in moments in our practice, we'll learn that not adding anything is the path to real happiness. But we, need, we might need to be a little bit more controlling in order to let go of what's not helpful at all. So it's a long answer, but hopefully it helps a little. Other thoughts about meditation practice that come to mind? Experiences you're having that seem confusing or ruts that you seem to be falling into in your practice? And it's really important not to be shy about sharing it. It's so helpful for people to hear how it is for other people. You know kind of depersonalizes our meditation practice and we feel like, oh, our minds are more similar than they are different. Yeah, Gabe. Um, this is, I think, pretty general, but just about emotions. For me, I just finished my first year at college, and um, on Monday, dropped my girlfriend off at the airport, and so she's going to be in England, so I won't see her till fall, and um, and so and I notice I, there's definitely emotion there, but I think you know in general I've been. I've, I've been being pretty skillful with it, um, but I, I can tell that there's like an edge there that that instead of just feeling sad, I'm also having all these thoughts of of like you know what things I could have done better or you know things that might be going wrong or could go wrong. Um, so then I, I can tell that I don't necessarily have to believe those thoughts, but they might be in the way of just feeling sad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. I certainly resonate. I can remember the end of my freshman year. I just remember my heart kind of dropping down, you know, same thing, saying goodbye to my girlfriend. And, and just also just feeling that wave, like uh, it felt like such a whirlwind. You know, we all feel this, you know, different places in our lives, different times in our lives. It's like where we've been in a whirlwind, and then all of a sudden the whirlwind ends, and there we're, we're kind of left with that feeling, oh, this is the residual of that year, of that month, of that, you know, this last period of my life. And all the remorse comes up, and like, just as you described so well, Gabe. And, and I think you, you kind of, you know, said exactly what's right. It's that, that understanding that the pain itself is really what's relevant. And the thing is, if we avoid getting intimate and creating space for that yucky feeling of sadness, or it might be even more than sadness, it may be sadness and also a flavor of uncertainty and, and like this a Nietzsche quality, like you're not actually in control. You know, 
one of the reasons we want the people we love near us is that it gives us the semblance that we can control it. But when we're apart, we don't know what's going to happen. And uh, so to, to be willing to, to uh, be intimate with the sadness and the uncertainty and the vulnerability that is that exposes and to really make space for that will quiet the mind there won't be as much need to think about what could happen what you would like to have happened what you wish it had had happened there won't be as much of a need to think those thoughts if we can get close to this and I often it's kind of a funny thing but it's really an important instruction is like to practice being the walking wounded, like to, to understand that as a human being, we're inevitably wounded by living. It unavoidably, we get wounded, we get hurt. We feel the inevitable, you know, the sensitivity that uh, to uncertainty and to insecurity and to vulnerability. And to somehow be unaware of that means we're not practicing well. Actually, if, we're, if our practice is good, we're not just aware of deep joy and beauty, but we're also aware of deep suffering, ours and others, and the vulnerability to it. And surprisingly, the heart or the mind or the sort of wisdom can hold it all. We think, oh, we couldn't possibly hold that. But in a way, that's sort of the definition of a saint, somebody who can hold beauty and joy and the deepest insecurity and vulnerability and sadness and have enough space and then to respond out of that. And it just makes our response moment by moment so much more rich and creative and uh, appropriate when it's coming from deep joy and deep sadness. It's not like a mistake to feel that, but it takes it takes a lot of practice to really uh, uh, relax with that, you know, that pain, that sadness, and that separation. You know, the ending of the school year and the separation from your girlfriend. It's like creates the possibility to practice in this way. You know, to just and to you know, like you said, when you wake up in the morning, it's almost like you you tune into it. So where is it? Oh yeah, there it is. There's that feeling of sadness. There's that feeling of loss. There's that feeling of vulnerability and insecurity. Okay, okay. It's like you're sort of like getting stable, or but the stability is because you're including it, not because you packaged it in some way that makes sense, but that you've learned to be undefended with it. And then you can also do that with beautiful states, like where's, you know, you kind of bring up the insights you've had in your practice. You know, like, where's that sense that everything's okay, that everything can be trusted? Oh, yeah, I bring that in, too. Where's the feeling, the capacity to love? Because that's a really wholesome thing to bring up. Like, this heart has a capacity to care for myself or others. I'll bring that in. You know, and then we're ready to begin our day, having brought this sort of included all of that. Sort of now we're truly a well-rounded person, you know, because it's like we've got roots into the very depth of the heart. Yeah, have a good summer. (laughs) Other thoughts people have? Last week I uh, started talking about um, and we'll continue for several weeks, uh, how goodwill or loving kindness really is that basic attitude of a spiritual life. And in meditation practice, a lot of times mindfulness can seem really clinical, like, you know, just seeing this, seeing that, and there's a certain coolness and, uh, yeah, like... Uh, almost uh, has sometimes a nihilistic flavor. You know, we're just, it's just something being known. But we have to remember that, that, you know, there is very, there is a very strong element of deconstruction in Buddhist mindfulness practice. We're deconstructing 
you know, our overlays. We overlay our concepts, our story about things, and we're deconstructing it into the present moment. Like seeing, instead of seeing, you know, a person, you know, I can see blue, I can see shape, I can see form. You know, and I can even have a thought, oh, that's Jim, you know, and that's a cushion, and that, you know, this is the meditation hall at Common Ground. But all it can be, these can just be little momentary elements of a thought, of a seeing, of a hearing, of a smelling. So there is this sort of radical deconstruction or uh, sort of simplicity of seeing. But it's really arising out of this wish to be happy, to be free of suffering, to be free of the weight that we're feeling in life. So part of our job as a practitioner is to uh, understand that there is a wholesome attitude and there are unwholesome attitudes. And that we are responsible. It's like we think when we're in a bad mood, we're irritable or impatient, we think, you know, well, that's, we're stuck with it. But we're never stuck with our attitude. And, and I mentioned this last week, you know, we want to take responsibility for the ecology of the mind, of the heart. And not to feel helpless, but just to experiment, like, how can I change the attitude if, I, if my mind is despondent, kind of giving up, feeling helpless. Well, what could I do? What's the appropriate way to relate? And you try something, and you see if it makes as an effect. Just like with the breath, and you know, you you try relating to it a particular way, and see if it actually leads to that inner happiness or not. And then if it doesn't, to try, you know, trial and error, and then really pay attention. And if it doesn't work, then remember that. Oh, that doesn't work. I'll try something else. Oh, that did work. Or maybe I'll try it and maybe it will work again. And it's the same thing with our mood or our attitude. Some of you know that the first Friday of the month, usually this, this month, it happens to be the second Friday of the month, we have a, a practice group on, loving, on the loving-kindness practice. So there's even a formal meditation for changing one's attitude. And it isn't just loving-kindness isn't the only way to change our attitude, but... We're using it because it's the next of the ten paramis, the ten perfections of the heart, this list we've been working on the last year and a half. So we're, in particular, we're looking how how this, uh, it's really an archetypal way of being in the world. It's like one of the real gifts of being a human being. You know, because we're a social creature, it's probably part of our genetics. We have this capacity to trust and this, this capacity to kind of care, care for ourselves, but also care for another. I saw, I sometimes check uh, Andrew Sullivan's uh, blog on, at the Atlantic Monthly. Maybe some of you know it's a pretty popular blog. And he has things there every once in a while besides the news. And, and I think it was there, I saw it. Anyway, somewhere on the internet. And uh, there's a little, probably YouTube video of uh, a little baby sitting in the middle of a kitchen floor and a small, looked like a, like a collie, but a small collie dog. And uh, it was so cute how, you know, you could just see that both of these creatures are pack animals, you know, the little baby boy and the little dog. And, and as sort of animals that are sort of uh, have this wiring to play, to take care of, to relate to one another. They were just playing together in such an adorable way. Um, And so we as human beings, and especially we as practitioners, people who want to consciously train our mind We need to start all of that training. If it's really going to be effective, it has to be done with the right attitude. If we do our practice out of greed, out of fear, out of aversion, we're actually cultivating greed, fear, and aversion. 
So we have to do, we, we really, it's important to emphasize that we're doing our practice out of some wholesome attitude. Could be just the attitude of inquiry. So it doesn't have to be loving kindness. But loving kindness is one of the most accessible, like caring for ourselves, caring for others. And so this is, like I said, it's, it's instinctual. It's not far away. And the Buddha made a big point of this, and you know, teachers over the centuries, centuries have made a big point of compassion, of loving kindness, gratitude, forgiveness, you know, all the different sort of facets of kindness, of that basic human warmth. And they make a big deal of it is because it is, for most people in most moments of your life, it is the easiest way go from a worldly life to a spiritual life by simply remembering this capacity, this basic wish that's already there. I mean, it might be buried, it might be sort of hidden, but it's accessible, right? Is there anybody in the room now that can't tap into an authentic wish? May this body, mind, heart be happy, be at ease, be safe. Is there anybody who can't actually connect with that wish. So this is what I mean. Now, as soon as we connect with that wish, we've already created some separation from the habits of greed, aversion, and delusion, the basic problem for us human beings, getting caught and proliferating around greed, craving, attachment, aversion, fear, irritation, impatience, hatred, violence, and delusion, being disconnected, being distracted, being in denial, right? Because we're clear, when, when we feel this wish to be happy, the mind is aware of it in the present moment. It's not diluted. It's not averse. It's a pleasant feeling to, to know that we care that we wish well for ourselves, that we want to take care of. We may not know how to take care of ourselves, but that's the second step. The first step is just to recognize that we do want to take care of ourselves. And then you see it's a, actually a relatively small step to realize, at least in our inner circle, like the people we care about first, that's the first step, to realize that they just want to be happy too. You know, Our partners, they just want to be happy. The people who are our friends, they just want to be happy. Our pets just want to be happy. That little ant that's crawling on the lectern, it just wants to be happy. And that, you see how it really to suppress our self-centeredness. Because once we recognize that, right, we can't be in that sort of narrow self-centered drama when we start recognizing, you know, you just look around the room. You know, probably 90% of the people in this room you don't know, maybe maybe more. But you do know one thing, right? You know that everybody here wants to be happy. Everybody here wants to be safe and at ease. And you, you see how it changes already. The flavor in the room, the energy in the room just begins to shift just in recognizing that about us. And not only all of us, of course, but you know the people in the hexagon, they just want to be happy too. <laughs> and all those people at Rainbow and all those people who live in the neighborhoods around us, everybody, the little babies, the old people. And then when we when we tune into that, then when we begin this, you know, our meditation practice more formally by being sensitive we're really, the sensitivity is being born out of that understanding that I care about this life. And then we won't just start practicing our neurotic habits, like I'm meditating in order to be better than the rest of you. Or being better than who I think I am. You know, we like, here's who I think I am, here's who I want to become. All of those are, are sort of different flavors of violence. You know, pushing other people away, becoming... You know, it's like good and bad involves violence. You can't have good and bad without violence, without aggression, 
without hatred. You can't be dividing things up. A spiritual life is not about dividing things up. It's about unity. It's about letting go of good and bad, this and that. And the first step is just this uh, recognition of goodwill. Finding it and watering it. And the way we water it is simply by recognizing it. And especially recognizing its inherentness. Like, you don't have to really do anything. It's more like dropping distraction is all we have to do. And we'll just discover that basic wish. You know, in terms of what Gabe was saying earlier about feeling that sadness. It's like we can either, that sadness, if we're not careful, will just fuel thinking like Gabe suggested. Worrying, planning, wondering if you could have done it better. Or if we recognize this capacity to care, then that allows us to be intimate. And it's just so much more pleasant and wholesome to be intimate with that feeling than to be doing riffs on it and thinking and and, and because then we just basically all we do is we have a thought and we use the thought to frighten us, frighten ourselves. And then we're frightened, so we have to have another thought. And it's like the dog chasing its tail, you know, or a cat chasing its tail. It's a little bit like that where we we project something in our minds and then we react to it. And that reaction is just the next projection in the mind. So we react and then we react to the reaction. And we react to that reaction. And basically, we fill up our lives in this way. It's stressful. It's heavy. And the terrible thing about it is we tend to cause problems for other people when we're lost in that kind of mental activity. We're just not as good of a lover, good of a friend, good of a son or daughter or parent when we're letting our minds spin in that way. Yeah. Any suggestions for when it's happening? Remember that a wholesome, beautiful attitude is never far away. Because remembering just that will be the cause for you to look for another way to be with what's happening. So when you find yourself obsessing or in some involved in some afflictive emotion or mind state, then as soon as you have, you need, first of all, when you're lost in it, you're lost in it, and there's really nothing you can do until you have a moment of mindfulness and you're aware that you're caught. That provides the opportunity for a choice. And in that moment, now if there's mindfulness has some momentum, you could just see, oh, it's just a thought. It's just a mind state. And the whole thing can fall apart very quickly. And that happens sometimes. But when you've got a lot of momentum of being lost, being caught up, being identified with that story or those thoughts, then you might need to, uh, might take a few steps. And the first step, as I'm suggesting now, is if, if you can just insert the different attitude, which is instead of immediately feeling like you've got to do something about this obsessive pattern, first recognize this hurts and I care about it. I care about not the story. I care about the hurt. I care about that my mind is tight. My body is tight. I care about this pain. If you start there and realize that I just want to take care of this life, and then maybe, if, depending on sort of how it unfolds, you might realize I also want to. I also care to some degree about those who are also involved in this particular interaction or little life situation drama. I care about it. And then that caring itself will be the cause for you to be more sensitive. When we don't, when, when we're sort of on automatic pilot, we just sort of repeat patterns. But when we really care, we care enough to see whether what we're doing is working. Is it helping or not? Is obsessing about this helping? We obsess because we think it's helping. But when we remember we really care, then we're going to remember that, well, if I really care, then I'm going to pay attention to see with, see whether or not what I'm doing is helping or not. 
like even again going back to what Anne was saying about working with the breath when the mind doesn't seem to be able to work with the breath as a meditation object well what can I do to make this awareness of the breath lead to happiness to ease in the body and the mind how can I adjust and adapt so that the practice leads toward an authentic happiness how can I what can I do about this relationship with my partner so that uh, there's more ease in my mind, more ease in my body and my life? How can I take care of my body so that I'm more happy? You know, it sounds self-centered, right? But at this level in our practice, everything is self-centered. The way to going beyond self-centeredness is to understand how to be happy because when do when are we willing to abandon our self-centered neurotic habits when we feel happy as long as we're sliding down the well and not wanting to slide down the well we're gonna we're gonna struggle in a frantic way but when we feel some safety and some contentment and some inner happiness then we're willing to let go of our self-centered neurotic uh, perspectives and we can open you know have the insights that the Buddha had and um, countless men and women have had that those deeper insights you know about the inherent unity or the inherent absence of self of self-centeredness those insights happen when the mind is willing to abandon it that it doesn't abandon it when it's struggling. It abandons it when it feels safe. So first, we use the ego to get sensitive. Like, if we really want to be happy, let's pay attention. Right? Let's pay attention so we can abandon what doesn't lead to happiness and cultivate what actually leads to happiness. And then that pursuit of happiness leads to the letting go of self-centeredness leads to all of the insights that we read about and hear about from people who have been developing their practice. And it's 9 o'clock, so we'll leave it here. Thanks for that question. I don't know your name. Oh, Brenda. Sorry. Brenda. Thanks, Brenda. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. <laughs> and appreciate being here. Appreciate these ancient and really practical teachings that have been handed down to us. And however feeble our practice might seem to ourselves, we make this resolve, this beautiful aspiration to cultivate awareness and wisdom and compassion as a way of taking care of ourselves and a way of taking care of everybody. So may our life and our practice be a cause for happiness, real peace, and freedom from suffering for all beings without exception. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. So good to see everyone. Nice to be home. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.